When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Appreciate it, John. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to primetime. It is time to get after it. It's time to put on your lawyer hat. The idea of Trump exercising executive privilege to avoid any scrutiny by the January 6th commission is being reported as if it is a legitimate option. It should not be. And here is why. The facts. Trump sent a letter to the National Archives today asking to withhold about 40 documents the committee wants, citing executive privilege. Now, does that exist? Yes. A sitting president has that privilege. The key is sitting. Trump is obviously out of office. Does that matter? Yes. Why? Two arguments. Legally, there is zero precedent for a former president getting such protection from their own issuance, from their own issuance, meaning they say, as a former president, I want to exercise this privilege. Now, there's a distinction to be made. I'll get to it in a second. But no precedent of the law recognizing a former president being able to do this. The closest thing to a case on point is what happened in the Supreme Court against Nixon. And that case rejects the idea. Why? The privilege belongs to the presidency, which is an office. It does not attach to the person in the office ad infinitum, meaning forever. Second, we know this not just as a matter of law, but as a matter of practice, because to the distinction I mentioned earlier, former presidents have asked sitting presidents to exercise the privilege on their behalf to protect particular communications or documents. That means, in no small irony, it is up to President Biden to choose whether to protect Trump's January 6 communications. And Biden said, no way. You deserve a full understanding of what led to an attack on the Capitol on January 6th. President Biden in the White House said it matters too much to censor. But for Trump, this is not about the law. It's not about proper practice. It is about delay. Delay by a man who's been working the legal system for half a century. The latest move, his lawyer warned four of his ex-aides not to comply with their subpoenas, and at least one listened. The January 6th panel put this out earlier. While Mr. Meadows and Mr. Patel are so far engaging with the select committee, Mr. Bannon has indicated that he will try to hide behind vague references to privileges of the former president. We will not allow any witness to defy a lawful subpoena or attempt to run out the clock, and we will swiftly consider advancing a criminal contempt of Congress referral. Now, if you'll recall, four Trumpers got subpoenas. They only mentioned three. They left out Scavino. Why? Because effectively he's been on the lam for the last two weeks, dodging being served, although personal service meaning to him directly, it's not really necessary here. 
Of all those four, though, Bannon has the fewest reasons to not comply. His lawyer put out this uh, tripe that they must accept Trump's direction and honor his invocation of executive privilege. Now, this fails twice. First, again, there is no privilege for a former president, which is what Trump is, to be exercised by the same. Second, Bannon wasn't even part of the administration on January 6th. He was a podcast host under indictment, as a matter of fact, for allegedly defrauding Trump supporters. Remember, Trump let him off the hook and pardoned him. So even if executive privilege did apply here, and it should not, neither with the others and certainly not with Bannon, because that protection is about a president and key advisors so that they can have conversations without fear of exposure. But in 2018, Trump said of Bannon, Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency. Now, that was after they had a falling out, but that's irrelevant. If Bannon had nothing to do with the presidency, according to former President Trump, how could the privilege argument ever hold up even if privilege existed? So with privilege waived by Biden and not available to Trump, will the committee follow through on its threat to hold Bannon in contempt? That's what is getting all the media focus. But I suggest a different question. Forget Congress. Will any of what has, is, and will likely come out about Trump savaging the Department of Justice and its officials move from Congress to the DOJ itself, meaning will Attorney General Merrick Garland take action? It seems Trump thinks that there is a chance because he has been swooning over Biden's AG lately. He's a respected man. He's somebody that uh, has always been highly respected. My guess is Trump has no idea who Garland was until he became relevant in the Supreme Court talk. But that's not what matters. What matters is a nice Trump is a worried Trump. Does he have good reason? A better mind, CNN legal analyst Ben Ginsburg, a leading Republican election lawyer. Good to see you, counselor. How are you, Chris? Better uh, than expected. First, do you accept uh, the aforementioned analysis of whether executive privilege uh, can be exercised by Trump? Uh, The privilege clearly rests with the sitting president. Uh, Sitting presidents often have reason to honor these requests. I think the other factor that comes in here is very much the actual actions that took place on January 6th. They were not official actions in any way, they may have been political. Uh, They may have had to do with the past election or uh, the certification of the current election, but they were not official actions that usually come under executive privilege. Um, Two points. One, documents. Sounds boring to the public. Uh, What can be in there that we're not expecting when it comes to January 6th? Well, one of the big puzzles is what exactly the president was doing during the time from the end of the rally to when the the insurrectionists dissipated. And so the official White House documents will include telephone logs, contemporaneous emails, perhaps contemporaneous text. Those will provide a much fuller picture of what Trump and his associates were doing during this 
uh, terrible time. Um, now, I do not mean to disrespect Congress, but I really believe if there are any teeth to the situation, it only comes from the DOJ. I mean, Congress doesn't even have a great set of tools to enforce subpoenas, do they? No. I mean, one of the dirty little secrets about the founding fathers and the Constitution and separation of powers is they didn't really provide Congress tools to enforce their subpoenas. You certainly saw that with uh, members of the Trump administration during impeachment. And you even saw with Eric Holder responding to the Republican subpoenas on Fast and Furious during the Obama administration. Um, Now, two questions. One, do you believe the DOJ would have anything here uh, to really mine? And how concerned are you about what all this does in terms of undermining the next set of elections? I think DOJ always has powers to investigate crimes. So if Attorney General Garland decides that what happened on January 6th is in fact criminal activity, uh, worthy of a broader investigation than just the indictments against the insurrectionists, he certainly has the authority. But overall, there is harm to our elections. It certainly denigrates the trust Americans have in the results that take place. You've seen that the uh, the actions towards election officials that uh, the Trump supporters have done is causing many election officials, experienced election officials, to retire. It's sort of like working the refs, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, the onslaught of criticism for the election officials is going to impact people who are trying to do their jobs the right way in upcoming elections. I would use a different analogy. I don't know that it's working the refs as much as it's working the scorebook. Um, I saw in your thoughts about this issue, Counselor, that you say, look, maybe the best bet is to just let Trump continue uh, these bogus audits and let state by state show that everything was okay. But the counter argument is you got lucky in Arizona. You had those cyber ninjas. Uh, The fact that they didn't figure out how to change the results may have just been good fortune. What if you do an audit in a state like Texas and they bring in some outfit that knows how to work the numbers and they show that it was wrong illegitimately? Well, I don't think this is about the counts so much. There's no way to decertify uh, the 2020 election. But they could undermine confidence in the count. Well, they've already done that. And the question is how you resolve the fact that 30 percent of the population doesn't have faith in the elections. I think this is almost a give them enough rope to hang themselves situation. That in fact, every time Trump and his supporters have had to prove election fraud, had the opportunity, they failed. Whether it was the litigation, their own commission in 2017, the report by Michigan Senate Republicans that debunked all the theories there, the Arizona audit, not so much for the counts, but for when they said there may be illegal ballots those allegations were so quickly refuted that eventually the truth of the matter, which is that Trump has no evidence of systemic fraud, has to come out. And perhaps that can convince some of his supporters that they're wrong. And in addition to the supporters, elected Republican officials who I think are sort of uh, their souls are getting eaten alive, having to, to put up with what Trump is saying and support it. Lastly, uh, from everything that you've heard so far, what do you believe is the largest risk to Trump or any of his people 
uh, for exposure to the DOJ because of their activities or communications around the 6th? Uh, you know, I have to go with the raw fact of armed insurrection is breaking in the Capitol to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power that undergirds our democracy and what their actions were during that day and in the lead up to that day, which is why the documents that they that uh, the government will or the, the House committee will get a hold of can be so crucial in showing that basic violation of the Constitution. Ben Ginsburg, uh, always a better mind. Thank you for helping the audience and understand this situation. Best to you and the family. I'll speak to you soon. All right. Another uh, mysterious investigation. Uh, Gabby Petito. That is the case. She is the victim. Brian Laundrie is the fiance. And the question is twofold now. Been almost three weeks. Uh, That is an important line in terms of survivability in a place like this reserve or preserve. More than 80 miles of hiking trail, nearly 25,000 acres of land and swamp and lots of hiding spots. That is if he's even there. Remember, the only reason that they looked at the preserve is because his parents said that's where he went. What if they weren't telling the truth? What if they were wrong? Let's assume they were right, like the police are. I've got a rancher here tonight who knows that reserve better than many. Why does he think laundry is anywhere but there? Next. Tonight, we take a step back because of developments in the Gabby Petito case. The development, Northport, Florida police tell CNN that even after Brian Laundrie's parents reported him missing, they still refused to answer any questions about Gabby Petito, whose body had not yet been found. Remember, the most damning uh, facts here are when Brian Laundrie came home, his parents stopped communicating with the Petitos, even before Gabby was reported missing, let alone found dead. Second is that Brian Laundrie is nowhere to be found. All right. Now, investigators never had the chance to talk to Brian before he left home without coming back. We're all learning all of this as the manhunt for Laundrie continues in Florida's Carlton Reserve. Remember, they're only in that reserve looking because they found the car after the parents told authorities that's where he said he was going. Attempts have been slowed by heavy flooding. A laundry family attorney says the water in the preserve is receding, which may help the search. I don't know how he would know that, but that's what we're told. Northport police say their entire search there was prompted by information provided by the parents, like I said. But since then, they've had zero credible tips on sightings of laundry in the reserve itself. Police previously confirmed that a notice was placed on laundry's abandoned Mustang near an entrance to that reserve. But does that mean he definitely drove it there? Let's bring in someone who knows the area very well. Um, Alan McEwen. And he is a Florida cattle rancher. He has spent nearly every day at the reserve for 30 years. Now, that's a portfolio of understanding. First of all, sir, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Now, from what you understand of the situation and what it takes to be in there and stay in there, you say you doubt that Brian Laundrie could be there. Why, sir? 
Well, for anybody to go in there any period of time at the time he went in with the flooding we've had, it is just impossible for anybody to survive in there, even to move around in there. Uh, like I said, we had, we, we had a real bad flood that came up. It came all the way up through the Myakahatchee, which came out through there. And you, you have 25,000 acres of nothing but wetlands, completely wet, except now, for the main entrance, which is on the power lines, which is dry. So help us understand, uh, for people who've never been in there, who don't even understand what that kind of terrain is like, when you've had flooding in an area like that, how much water are you talking about? What does it do to the trails? What does it mean that it's hard to move around? Well, it's actually the real name back in that area is called the Big Slough. And there's flag ponds out there anywhere from a quarter mile in diameter to some that are a mile in diameter. We call it seven ponds, some of us that know the area like that. And the, the whole area is just backed up underwater. You go out there you, and there's places it's ankle deep with the palmettas are still underwater, places that are knee deep up to waist deep and it's muck. Completely muck. I mean, I've rode horses in there looking for cattle when I've had them get out and run over in there. And you'll be going in there and I'll, have, I'll be walking along and my horses just fall slap down through their chest into the muck and hard to get out. You sink. So it would be very and hard to move, let alone to get very far. And then you have the observation issue. What is the chance that in those kinds of conditions he would have been seen, or do you think nobody was really in there because it was so wet? I don't think anybody was in there to begin with. I don't think anybody in their right mind would even go in there to hide if they were hiding. It's too hard to move around in there. You can't, you can't move around unless you get on the one trail and it's only gonna take you straight up the power lines. And you're not gonna stay on that, you're gonna to wanna to get off. But with the palmettos, the swamps, and the flag ponds, it, it, it's, it's just, it, there's no way, there's no possible way for anybody to go in there and camp to find a high ground in there. I know two or three places in there that are very high. I had some cows get out last year. Again, like I said once before, I spent five weeks chasing one cow and I found three high grounds that were under some oak hammocks that the cows were laying up in. But it took me five weeks to catch them. And even when they were running across there, they were sinking and bobbing. I couldn't even get to them. And my dogs couldn't even get across there. What it's is, just as wet as it is. It's it, it's just too. I, I I get it now. I understand that, and thank you because you know for you know a lot of people watching the show are like me. I've been in these places for work, but I wouldn't understand. It looks like a forest, um, but it's not. It's more of a bog, is what you're explaining when it's wet like that. Uh, what is the chance that something in there got him, ate him, or hid him? Well, I don't think anything in there is going to eat him. I mean, as wet as it is, everything else has gone to higher ground, except for like a, alligators and snakes and fish. And other than that, most, like you say, when you get out in the wild like that, alligators are usually more scared of you than you are of them. You know, I mean, we're not at a public golf course. We're not in town where alligators are used to seeing people. You get out there and you come up on an alligator, nine times out of 10, they're gonna run from you. Now, the only other thing out there that really could get him is a water moccasin, snakes. We got a lot of them out there thing about a water moccasin is they don't run from you. They come after you. One gets you, you can't get out of there, you're dead. And then again, when you have something dead out there, you're going to have buzzards flying everywhere. 
and you can't see any buzzards flying anywhere. There, no buzzards have been flying in any direction of this place. You, when you say you, you keep talking about one trail that follows the power lines, is that really the universe of possibility of places that he could have walked? I mean, you know, how many aren't there tons of trails through there? There's tons of trails, but all the trails are underwater. Every, again, you, you, the trails that people walk and ride their bicycle on at two weeks ago, it has dried up a little bit now, but there was no way for you to go out there and just go on a natural hike. I mean, people that we've been searching for him, they've been out there on four-wheelers, people that haven't been out there before, and they're sinking their four-wheelers, they're sticking them. Swamp buggies are getting stuck. They can't even travel through there, through the palmettos and stuff like that. So you're saying there's your just, money is on the fact that his car may have been there, but you don't think he ever was, and if he was, he wasn't for long. Oh, his car was definitely there. Right. There was nothing about that. Right. I, I actually believe somebody drove his car out there, parked his car. In my thoughts, they picked it up on Friday and then called the police. They drove the car home and then they called the police. I mean, if my child was missing, I wouldn't have waited till Friday. If he didn't come home Tuesday night, I would have been looking for him then. But I, when, I, when I went out there and would have found the car, I, I sure wouldn't have picked up the car and went home and then called the police. I would have called right there on the spot looking for my child. I hear my child's you. missing. I hear you. There are a lot of curious things going on here in terms of what was done and not done. But I have to tell you, Mr. McEwen, I know that this is all second nature for you, but this was really helpful. I haven't heard anybody lay out uh, the, you know, the constraints of being in this area and what it would take uh, as well. So thank you for this, sir. Oh, you're welcome. Like I said, again, you know, the, the palmettos out there alone are enough to trip you up when you're walking through them, when you stumble through them. The mosquitoes will carry you off. Anybody out there more than a day without mosquito spray, would you, you'd go insane with the bugs getting you and everything else. You, there's just no possible way for anybody to survive out there like I that. I got Nobody. it, and I appreciate you. I wish you the best, and thank you. Thank you very much, sir. All right. All right, so now, uh, the country and the debt ceiling. Everybody's happy because now America's not going to default on her debts. Why be happy? They just kicked this back for another fight to come in December. And you have McConnell saying, I'm not going to help you next time. Like he helped this time. Washington is broken. My next guest can explain better than anyone why Congress has gotten this polarized and paralyzed. The professor is back. Brinksmanship is about taking things to the brink of disaster in order to force leverage and outcomes. It's not something that the Senate was known for historically, but it is now. They just barely avoided disaster after Republicans barely scraped together enough votes to help Democrats kick the debt limit crisis down the road to December. So this is going to be back on us before, you know, you can blink an eye and it'll probably be worse. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is under fire for blasting Republicans after the vote. Listen. Republicans played a dangerous and risky partisan game, and I am glad that their brinksmanship did not work. I thank, very much thank, my Democratic colleagues for our showing our unity in solving this Republican-manufactured crisis. 
All right, let's dig in on what's happening in this Senate dysfunction with the professor, Ron Brownstein. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Talk about going from one impassable bog to another, by the way. I know, right? Well done. Well played. Well done. Let's herd some cows. Um, Why the Senate is so gridlocked? What happened? Look, look, the long-term trend, the change in in, in the Senate is that it is now more closely divided than it used to be, but also more deeply divided than it used to be. Uh, Chris, it's become very hard for either party to get very far above 50. I mean, if you look at this entire century, we've only had three majorities of 55 or more uh, in the last 22 years. In the 20 years before that, there were seven majorities of 55 or more. In the 20 years before that, there were nine majorities of 55 or more. Both sides can't get very far above 50. And at the same time, it's become harder for either side to get support from the minority for anything that they want to do. And so uh, what that means is that you don't, you know, you're not very close to 60 on your own, uh, which is what you need to break the filibuster uh, for all that, you know, everything that can't be shoehorned into reconciliation. Um, And it's very hard to get the other side to come with you. And both of these dynamics are really uh, grow out of the same current which is that it's become almost impossible for either side to win Senate seats in states that vote the other way for president. And since Joe Biden won 25 states, Democrats have 47 of their 50 Senate seats. Donald Trump won 25 states. Republicans have 47 of their 50 Senate uh, seats. And basically, that means that each side is has a hard time getting a solid majority. But given that almost all of the uh, senators from the other party are from states that voted against their presidential candidate, it's awful hard to get them to vote with him as well. So you add all that up uh, and a 60 vote requirement, and it just doesn't work very well. Especially when you have half the Senate is put in office by like 18 percent of the population. Yeah. Uh, so they are yeah. playing well, small ball with their politics in a way that we're not used to the Senate doing. So the big question becomes uh, from an enlightened mind such as yourself, the mm-hmm. filibuster. Do you yeah. believe the arguments militate more in favor of keeping, losing or modifying? Uh, I think losing or modifying severely. I mean, the the, the idea that the, the alternate history being spun by uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, that the filibuster encourages bipartisan cooperation, never has really been true. And it is less true now than ever. As I said, it is almost impossible for a president in either party to get meaningful support from the other side for anything he wants to do. I think in large part, as I said, because almost every senator is now elected uh, in a state that votes for their side for president. So it's awful hard to cross uh, party lines. And basically all you are doing at this point is providing the minority a veto. We have a quasi-parliamentary system at this point with incredibly high levels of party discipline um, and a very little support from the minority for anything the majority wants to do. Well, in a parliamentary system, you have a majority rule. We don't have that. We have a parliamentary system without majority rule because of the filibuster. And that's a model that isn't replicated anywhere in the world for a good reason. It's a contradiction in terms. And you see it so clearly on the voting rights now, where, where Joe Manchin is basically saying that Washington should only respond to the efforts that Republicans in red states are making to suppress access to the ballot box if Republicans in the Senate agree to turn against their party members uh, in the states. It, it, the, whole, the whole logic just kind of falls apart. And I think the filibuster you know, has been uh, uh, obsolete or, or anachronistic for a while. It's even more pernicious, I think, in this modern environment. Ron Brownstein, appreciate you as always. Always a plus to have the professor. Be well, have a good weekend. Thanks. 
Thank you. Social media. I'm telling you, I'm not objective about it. Uh, I'll, I'm telling you, just as a parent, being a parent comes before being a professional. And you cannot tell any parent that pays attention to their kids' lives that social media can't be any better, can't be any safer, especially when it comes to kids. So I don't care that this has been one of the worst weeks for Facebook. It should be. It's just that Facebook isn't the only person we should be talking about. Now, another outage amplifying its problems. And again, these outages, you know, they are some coincidence in terms of distracting from the heat that's on them. They're also the least of their problems. Does the government need to regulate? If so, how? And I want to bring in somebody who knows that Facebook's not going to fix itself. He was once an advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. The man is smart and he is committed. You've got to read the piece he just wrote that's on Time uh, Magazine's cover. This is a guy that can help us figure out what's wrong that we don't even know. Next. As you probably know, there was another outage for Facebook today. It wasn't as widespread as the earlier one this week, but it shows you two things. One, just how powerful social media is in the fabric of our lives. Mixed metaphor. But you know what I'm saying. It's so important that we can't ignore it. And also, just how big a footprint Facebook has, which kind of speaks to whether or not is it really good for one company to absorb that much of the bandwidth of our social media existence? Probably grabs your phone to check because that's how important it is. The race to get everything fixed, it's not about losing customers. It's about losing their product. That's you and your kids, all right? The safety of our kids and the privacy of our information, that's how they're making their money, okay? This moment went viral a few years ago, but it's telling about how Facebook plays with the truth. Listen. Well, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. Yeah. Run ads. Not that they sell ads. What's the difference? Because what they sell is the access to you and to a staggering degree, our kids. You see what I'm saying? It's not that they're getting money to like a magazine or something like that. It's the information, man. It's the access. And it's what is being put in front of our kids. For example, you know, did you know that for the first quarter of this year, guess what the most popular link was on Facebook? Take a guess. You're wrong. <laughs> it was a site uh, link about misinformation that was feeding anti-vax movement. How is that okay? This business model is becoming known as surveillance capitalism. How is that okay? My next guest knows the reality, okay? He worked in there. He was one of the earliest investors. He understands the business model and the mentality. He's also the author of Zucked. Roger McNamee just wrote, that's his book, but he just wrote this article. It's on the cover of Time Magazine. It's online. You can get it. I'll put it on my social media also. You have to read it because Roger, the, the point you're making, thank you for coming back, brother. Um, appreciate you. Is that we don't even know what we don't know. Even the bills that we're all hoping will fix this are from years ago. And so much of what our lawmakers know about this business comes from the lobbyists from the industry. 
who are among some of the most moneyed ever in existence. What's the chance you get real change? Well, so, Chris, I actually feel more optimistic today than I have in a very long time. And the reason is that the whistleblower, uh, Francis Haugen, provided receipts. I mean, really serious internal reports at Facebook analyzing things that went wrong. And in each case, the management team, of course, said, we're going to put profits before people. But the reason it's so important is that the staffs on the various committees in the House and Senate recognize that Francis Haugen has shown them things that we didn't know before. So they know that the legislation they have to create is different than the stuff that they've been working on. And so they are feverishly working on this right now. And I would expect between now and early in the new year, you're going to see a lot of new bills come out that look much more like the solutions that we need, which, you know, you and I have talked about this before. It's really about safety. It's about privacy and it's about updating the antitrust laws. And we need legislation in all three areas. And the great thing about that hearing with Francis Haugen is that in the Senate, both the Republicans and the Democrats were on the same page. And when was the last time that happened? Um, I have a buddy who is a tech analyst who uh, has very much appreciated what you've had to say on the show so far, loves that we're going to keep it going as a conversation because he said there's so much stuff to cover. So we will. But he said uh, he wanted me to ask, uh, the law is only as good as its enforcement. And government has a very hard time enforcing an industry that it doesn't really understand. He said, you think trading is tough to police. This stuff is much harder to police than trading. Do you agree? And if so, what's the answer? I think it's basically exactly as difficult as trading, which, by the way, he's right about the the core point. This is really, really hard. The government has always had to deal with complex issues. If you think about the creation of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, Congress knew nothing about the medicine business. But a few members of Congress became experts and have remained experts. That process began three years ago after Cambridge Analytica. So I feel like there are people like David Cicilline in the House, you know, and who really understand the issues. There's a bunch of senators who understand issues. And, you know, I'm very hopeful that we'll see good leadership on that part. The real challenge, and this is where I think your friend is exactly right, is that this business model isn't just about selling us as a product. It's about using recommendation engines to manipulate our behavior. And that is what's so dangerous. Those people who went and attacked the Capitol on January 6th, they had been manipulated into believing that that would be viewed as a patriotic act. I mean, think about that. These are, you know, these are Americans, right? And I can guarantee you two years earlier, they would never have considered attacking the Capitol to be a patriotic act. That was manipulation that occurred mostly on Facebook. And the things that we have to do, this is the sort of thing where you sit there and say, look, the the government of the last 20 years would never have been able to handle it. But this is a new challenge. And we're America, right? It's like a war. Um, There was a, a person at the Atlantic who wrote a thing saying that we should view Facebook and companies like that as adversarial countries. Right. So you're dealing with them the way you would deal with a country that you didn't have a good relationship with. And I think that's exactly right. We, well, you know, you can't believe anything they say. Let's do this. Uh, let's find out what our lawmakers propose to do first. And then let's come on and scrutinize it and see where it misses and where it hits. Roger McNamee, thank you very much. My pleasure. To be continued. All right. Facebook may be helping to tear us apart, but you know who brings us together, right? The Wizard of Oz. 
He has the numbers to prove that I may be a Debbie Downer, but I'm not a negative Nancy. <laughs> and we are united in ways we probably never knew. Something for you to sleep on. That's a hint. Next. You want to know the biggest thing that brings left and right together? A lack of sleep. Let's bring in the Wizard of Odds, the host of the new CNN podcast, Margins of Error. He takes on uh, sleep troubles and an interesting solution. Break it down for us. First, let's look at a bipartisan problem. How so? Yeah, it's a bipartisan problem because we're all having problems sleeping. Uh, Look at this poll that just came out from Ipsos last month. What do we see? Sleeper insomnia insomnia difficulties at least a few times in the last year. Look at that. 69% of Democrats, 67% of independents, 64% of Republicans. These numbers don't surprise me because basically everyone I speak to has at least some problem sleeping. Mm. I can't believe the Republicans are the lowest when the guy who's the head of their party is telling them that the country is falling apart every five minutes. Uh, all right, couples, uh, they have a particular problem. What is it and how much? Well, this is what I love. Let's just say you're having problems sleeping in your relationship. What is a potential way that we can solve it? How about we actually sleep separately from our partner in a separate room, maybe on the couch, maybe is this in a separate just old people? No, it's not just old people. You know, when I did this podcast episode, I was shocked at the number of people who came to me and said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with this. I do it all the time. I'm afraid to speak out about it. But a quarter of all couples are sleeping separately. And it's not just old folks. We need to get past this idea of the I love Lucy that, you know, we're going to have twin beds. That's not what we're really talking about. The fact is that households, uh, the size of houses are getting bigger. There are fewer people in the households. So you're able to sleep separately and still have comfortable rooms. And look, it's modern couples who are doing this, not the I love Lucy's of the past. Hmm. All right. Uh, Break down the reasoning as to why we don't want to sleep in the same bed. Yeah, I don't think this will necessarily surprise anybody. What's the number one reason? It's snoring, snoring, 46%. Sickness at 26%, not necessarily a big surprise. Maybe your partner's ill and you don't want to catch it. But you know what I really love here? This is my favorite part. Argument and fighting, 15% of the, of the time. But also look at this. Temperature differential, 10%. And I'm going to tell you why I find that to be interesting. Because I had a relationship a few years ago where the person I was with and I could not agree on the temperature in the room. I actually liked it really warm. She liked it really cold. So I was basically hiding all the blankets. She couldn't stand it. And so you know what I said? Let's just sleep differently. We can have fun together, but we can sleep sleep separately. And that way our relationship can sustain itself. And you know what? It actually worked. Sleeping in a separate room actually worked. It kept us going for a while. Was this the girlfriend you had that lived in Canada? Uh, No, look, I've only had a girlfriend who may have lived in Israel, okay? Not necessarily Canada. I know it's difficult for you to believe, Christopher, but the fact of the matter is that some people actually enjoy my company and don't necessarily just want to have me on for my good looks and then get rid of me once the show's over. (laughs) I'll tell you what number I think is low there. The kids one. Once you get into the kids game, you always, all parents say the same thing. Remember I told you this, if you ever get into the kid game. <laughs> We're not having them in the bed. We're not having them in the bed. This is our space. This is our thing. But it makes them sleep. 
and they get in and they start to become like little baby Bruce Lee's and they're kicking you into and that gets you out of the bed or to the corners. That's underrated. All right, Harry, I got to go. This was good. This is why your podcast, Margins of Error, is a smashing success. New episodes every Tuesday when Harry gets back from seeing a significant other in Canada. We'll be right back with the handoff. Thank you for watching Don Lemon tonight with its big star. D Lemon starts right now. I know there's news. No tie Friday. But uh, (laughs) the sleep numbers. Well, (laughs) people not wanting to sleep together, left and right being joined and being unrestful. I'm about to get in trouble. I'm all I'm all for it. Well, number one, our schedules are completely opposite. So I come home, I'm not ready to go to sleep immediately, so I have to hang out in the living room or whatever, or hang out in the room and with the TV on or whatever. But you do stay up too late, and you watch TV in bed, both of which are mistakes. How do you know that? Where'd you hear that? Should we tell them? Um, <laughs> you're, you're a fool. Go I'm on. correct, right? Yes. And but because I'm, I've always been a night owl, but then I wake up later, he gets up earlier, and moving around, the, going to the closet, going to the bathroom, the dogs, and it's like, why don't I just, you know, sleep in the other room? I'm the totally psychologists will say that separation breeds separation. But oh. I do think that there can be some balance. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the first point to make is not how we're sleeping, but the fact that in terms of situationally, but in terms of quality, we are all so stressed. Yeah. This is hard. Uh, this COVID and this angst and this animus. I'm not surprised to hear that, uh, you know, well over 60% of everybody mm-hmm. um, feels like they're not sleeping well right now. Uh, I, listen, I've had issues sleeping. Um, you know, there's a, a number of reasons that I won't give here, but uh, a lot of it has to do with what we do, the people who come after us and all kinds of things. So I've, I've ha- I had that issue, but okay, you know, Fine. I'm a big boy, and we have the privilege of having this platform, so there are trade-offs. Um, but I think the key to all of this, when you tell me I sleep too much, naps. Wherever I can get a nap, I can take a nap all day. And I think that more people should do Especially sort of- since you bogarted my <laughs> bed in the back of the SUV. <laughs> no, it's mine. <laughs> I, I got my own. I, I know you did, yes. but you know where you got the idea. Yes, from you. Yeah. So Chris and I were during, during COVID. He called it the hearse when he first saw me. And he's like, you're lying in the back of that thing like a coffin. Sit up like a regular person. We, um, we were commuting two and a half hours every single day during the quarantine. Crystal does it more than I do. But, um, and so we both put these beds in the back of the car so that I wanted to do, I had to do it because that's where my fiance wanted to be. And there are trade-offs and you have to make sacrifices. Uh, and so he has family out on the east end of Long Island. So that's where we lived during quarantine. I was in the city every single day, every single night working. So I was here and there. So don't say abandoned the city. I was here working. Um, but I would just sleep there. So yeah, listen, I think wherever you can get sleep, you should get it. If you can take a nap during the day like they do siestas or like people who do TM, which I have been trying to do, where you take a couple minutes for yourself every day, at least 20 minutes, I think you should do it because you don't get to get that, you know, 7 to 10 or whatever it is that people need every single night. It's very important that you get sleep. I also wonder, do you think it's healthier for a relationship? Look, if somebody's got sleep apnea or something like that or, you know, something that's causing a medical condition with snoring, you can't sleep next to them. Tim sleeps. Um, Tim snores. That's different. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, but do you think it is healthy for a relationship for the people to sleep in separate rooms on a regular basis? Well, I think, I think it should be an option. I don't know if it should be on a regular basis every single night, but I do think it should be options, especially when you have dogs. And don't tell me you don't know, because you got that little dog and it's been in the bed with that you That rat dog is in the bed every <laughs> night, and one out of every three nights she wants to go when I'm getting in the bed, because Christina's already asleep You know, when I get home. Okay. I get home after midnight. Same thing. And that dog, this rat rescue chihuahua hot dog that, you know, came from a rough situation, um, will go at me under the covers like some kind of crazed mongoose. (laughs) Well, she knows. She knows what the problem is. Hey, look, uh, again, I think it's I know people think it's lighthearted, but I do think it's it's a good conversation to have about. I think people there's I think sleep. Most important thing, sleep and water. Right. You have to have a good diet. You have to drink lots of water and you have to sleep. Everything else, secondary, I do believe. And if you're that blaming thing. somebody, when you are sleep deprived, you're not at your best. And if you blame somebody for that, yeah. that's going to get ugly yeah. early. So right. I do think that it's, you know, what Harry fell onto with the stats is people are figuring out that they got to do what works. Yeah. And that sticking to tradition may not be the best thing. Go home so that you don't wake Christina up. See I'm not allowed in any other bedroom in our house, <laughs> by the way. This is a new problem that we're going to have to have Harry research. We oh, what about into our house. Oh, what about when I fall my asleep? My wife, it's like I'm a guest in there. I'm not allowed to touch anything. <laughs> I'm only allowed to be in certain rooms. I can't wear shoes anymore. Yeah, well, there you go. The couch is mine, remember. I've fallen asleep on the yeah, couch I have, many I have seen you there. And let me tell you, he talks when he sleeps. And it's Goodbye. Nice. Go home. Go I to bed. I love you, D-Lemon. Have a great weekend. Love you, too. This We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.